fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me. In 1995, a president of the church and 14 other apostles of the Lord issued these important doctrinal statements. As one of only seven of those apostles still living, I feel obliged to share what led to the family proclamation for the information of all who consider it. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion and Radio Free Mormon. I am sitting here today. This is Bill Real. I'm sitting here today with RFM. Uh, Radio Free Mormon, how are you doing? Doing great, Bill. Thanks for asking. Awesome. We just played for you some audio from Elder Oaks in this past October 2017 general conference, and we're going to jump into that, but not for a little bit, because we need to set it up, and we need to give some context uh, to the idea of how the proclamation came about, and there's a lot of data that goes into this. We um, Maybe, RFM, maybe you can help inform us. There was um, a Rational Faith blog that we're going to borrow heavily from. Maybe inform the listener of, of what that is and where they can find it. Oh, sure. It's a Rational Faith uh, it's called From Amici to Ohana, the Hawaiian Roots of the Family Proclamation. It is an article that was written by Laura Compton back in May of 2015. And although you might not know it from the title, if you read the article, what you'll find out is that Laura Compton has very clearly uh, set forth the, well, basically the political backdrop against which the proclamation on the family was written. Yeah, exactly. And so today we thought there's nothing out there that really dives into how the proclamation, the, the family, a proclamation to the world was created and what was the backdrop for it. And so we thought we'd dive into that today. And and I thought, uh, RFM, that I would start us off by talking a little bit about Elder Oaks and a document that he was a huge part of, that he uh, created as the author of. Uh, early in his time in the Quorum of the Twelve. So it, it should be said that Elder Oaks uh, graduates from law school school in 57. He serves with um, Supreme Court Justice uh, uh, Warren, or is it Earl Warren? Is that who it yes. is at RFM? So he serves with Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren, and he serves there for two years. He then goes back to the university he graduated from, Chicago University, uh, to be a professor there. He does that for, for several years. So he becomes uh, president of BYU from 1971 to 1980. From 1980 to 1984, he serves on the Utah Supreme Court, and then he essentially resigns from that position to take a calling as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1984. That very same year, he is the author of a document that is titled Principles to Govern Possible Public Statement on Legislation Affecting the Rights of Homosexuals. And and I think, I don't want to say a whole lot about the document. We'll link this to the episode. You can go read it. But it's important to understand that Elder Oaks is a lawyer, is a judge. He's called to the Quorum of the Twelve. And right away, they put him in charge of formulating a legal uh, 
uh, opinion and formulating a legal process in which the church could deal with homosexuality going forward. And and so when you see Elder Oak stand up in conference just just a week or two ago, a couple of weeks ago, it's important to recognize that this has been his puppy for for a long time, since 1984. And to recognize that this is something that's really important to him and that as we start to begin to kind of unfold how the proclamation began, to, to recognize that it its very initial steps in, in being created likely start with the church having this conversation and Elder Oaks authoring this document. Again, we'll link it to, to the episode. Everybody should read it. There's tons of good stuff in there. I would... I would be almost on the verge of saying juicy stuff. Um, RFM, any thoughts from you before we kind of move off of this this kind of first step into this uh, discussion? Yes, three thoughts. First is, a good job bringing up the 1984 document written by Elder Oaks. I want to emphasize this is 11 years before the proclamation on the family is issued. The second thing is, is that it's my belief that really you cannot fully understand what it is that Elder Oaks is saying in his most recent conference talk about the family proclamation without understanding this history. And you also cannot understand what it is that he's not saying in the conference talk unless you understand its history. So I'm excited to have this chance to talk about it with you. Third thing, just being a little bit of a minor point, Earl Warren, the Warren court in the 1960 point of view, because the Warren Court was extremely liberal, extremely progressive in extending uh, social rights to individuals in the country. Um, I wonder if you could take us into the beginning here, and at any point along the way, feel free to stop and I'll jump in, but, but maybe open us up to kind of understanding what is happening if we fast forward from 1984 to 1991 – when these cases begin to just hit the surface in Hawaii. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Now, what I would normally do at this point, and it's okay to keep recording, but what I would normally do at this point is I would give a thumbnail sketch of exactly what this proclamation is and why it was written. And by doing that, I would say the proclamation was published to the world in October General Conference of 1995. This was at the same time that the issue of same-sex marriage was going up through the courts in the state of Hawaii. And the reason that this proclamation was written, at least all the evidence certainly seems to point in that direction, the reason this proclamation was written was so that the LDS Church could file briefing in support of traditional marriage in the Hawaiian case and briefing against same-sex marriage. So having said that, let me talk a little bit about appeals and standing. Cases get appealed all over the country. Every day cases are getting appealed. As a general rule, the parties in a case that's getting appealed have to write briefing. They have a right to submit briefing. In fact, they're required to submit briefing to support their positions on appeal. In some cases, in fact, in quite a few cases, there will be other parties or other groups that are not part of the case who also want to come in 
to the case and submit briefing on one side of the case or the other. And when that happens, what they're trying to do is come in to file a brief that's called an amicus curie brief, which is a nice Latin phrase which just means friend of the court. But not everybody can do that. For instance, if there's an appellate court going up, excuse me, if there's an appeal going up in some court here in the state, and I just am interested in it, I can't just go in there and submit briefing. I have no right to go in there and submit briefing because I'm not a party. But if the outcome of that case impacts me significantly in some way, then I can ask the court to be allowed to file friend of the court or amicus curie briefing. And if I show them and demonstrate to them that I have a dog in this fight, that this case impacts me, me personally, or whatever group I belong or whatever church I belong to, then they will allow me to file briefing in the case. But if I cannot make that showing, then they will say, no, you don't have an interest in this case, and therefore we're not going to, we're not going to allow you to file any briefing. So this is what's going on over in Hawaii. Now, first off, I got to say, this case over in Hawaii, it's called the Bear Case, and that's the, the last name of one of the um, the uh, people involved in the in the case. It goes up and down and up and down, and by that I mean from the trial court level up to the Supreme Court level in Hawaii, this, uh, the Hawaiian Supreme Court, and then back down and then back up. And so there's a lot of time that's going on while this case is working its way through the system and then back down and then back up through the system. The reason it goes back down is because the Supreme Court says, okay, we'll, we'll make this certain ruling, but we're sending it back to the trial court to make additional rulings, and then it can come back up and we'll decide if we agree with what the trial court decided there. So this process takes a number of years, as you might imagine. Well, the church is extremely interested in filing friend of the court briefing in the Hawaiian case. And as you might aware, excuse me, as you might imagine, the position they want to take is against same-sex marriage and in favor of traditional marriage. So they have to submit a request of the court to file this briefing which they do, and this is in the early 90s, and the Hawaiian court says, no, we're not going to allow your request to file friend of the court briefing because you have not shown that you have any significant interest in the outcome of this case. And because you don't have any significant interest in this, we're kicking you out and denying your motion to file briefing in this appellate case. Now, guess when the Hawaiian court rejected the church's attempt to file briefing? My guess would be it's just shortly, just shortly <laughs> before President Hinckley reveals the proclamation in the October conference. It is very shortly. Technically, it's March of 1995. So it's March of 1995, April conference is coming up. Apparently, that's too fast, and nobody has thought of this yet or what they're going to do about this, and so they've got to circle the wagons and figure out what they want to do. Nothing happens in April, but what does happen is that in 1995, all of a sudden, the church presents to the world the proclamation on the family, which now they are going to use, and they do use, in a second attempt 
to ask the Hawaiian Supreme Court for the ability to file friend-of-the-court briefing in the case. And, and it's interesting, RFM, as, as you go back in time to 91 and you work your way through how this case worked its way up the system, and to see the church trying to establish it has a legal interest in the case all along the way. So you have uh, Bear versus Lewin. The arguments are made in early October 1991. This is the first sniffing that the church gets that something is happening. And Donald Hailstrom, who is, I believe at the time, still a 70, maybe an area authority, he contacts the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve and notifies them that in Hawaii is this case that's working its way uh, into kind of a, a beginning uh, station of, of getting worked through. There, there's this idea, if you follow along the timeline, um, October, of course, is General Conference. So despite the flurry of activity, and this is what it says in the document, despite the flurry of activity surrounding October's General Conference and the illness of President Benson, within weeks, the First Presidency still comes up with a letter addressing homosexuality. On November 14th, 1991, their letter titled Standards of Morality and Fidelity. And it's important to note, like, right? Like, they're, they're continually trying to establish they have a legal interest. And at every step of the way, they're being told it's not strong enough. It's not adequate. It's not going to cut it. So in this, in this October of 91, they get this first inkling that this is happening. And can I just stop you right there just to add, the case in Hawaii was filed in 1991. I just want to underscore that. This is happening at exactly the same time, and this is why it's happening, because of the case in Hawaii. Go ahead, please. Sorry. Yeah, no, no problem. So in October of 91, the church finds out for the first time that this is beginning to start up, this stuff that Elder Oaks back in 1984 said was going to happen. Um, and, and he says, he lays out like, here's how the church could deal with it. And then in 91, it begins to hit the fan. And so Elder Hellstrom notifies the top 15. And a month later, despite President Benson and his ailing health, the first presidency comes up with this letter, Standards of Morality and Fidelity. And it says this, it says, we call upon members to renew their, their commitment to live the Lord's standard of moral conduct. Parents should teach their children the sacred nature of, the, of procreative powers and instill in them a desire to be chaste in thought and deed. A correct understanding of the divinely appointed roles of men and women will fortify all against sinful practices. Our only real safety, physically and spiritually, lies in keeping the Lord's commandments. The Lord's law of moral conduct is abstinence outside of lawful marriage and fidelity within marriage. Sexual relations are proper only between a husband and wife, appropriately expressed within the bonds of marriage. Any other sexual contact, including fornication, adultery, and homosexual and lesbian behavior, is sinful. Those who persist in such practices or who influence others to do so are subject to church discipline." So this is their first attempt at, at showing they have an interest in the case, in this legal proceeding. And it's important to note that the only thing they really have to do is condemn homosexuality 
But if they just did that by itself, it might seem odd to the membership. And so when they send these letters out, they're couching the one thing they have to address. They're, they're couching it in other gospel ideas and principles, and you'll see that continue throughout this process. Yeah, yes, that's exactly what's going on, because what ends up happening with the proclamation is they realize they need a proclamation, they need something in order to show that they have an interest in the issue of gay marriage. So they have to have something that actually does contain language that shows that they are against gay marriage, that this is not part of God's plan. And so when they finally realize they have to do that, I can imagine they have a meeting and say, okay, we need a proclamation. What should it say? Should it say, oh, we, don't, we hate gay marriage? No, 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 that's not a good idea. We don't like homosexuals. No, that's not really a very positive message. And somebody says, I know. Let's call it the proclamation on the family, and we'll be really pro-family, but we will seed in this proclamation that's pro-family all the necessary things that we think that we need that's anti-gay marriage enough to give us standing in the Hawaiian court case. Yeah, and, and even more than that, RFM, is the idea that in every one of these statements that they issue, all the way up to and including the family of proclamation to the world, you'll notice the language is always this idea of, um, we're, we want to renew our commitment. We want to get back to the things that we believe in. We want to continue practicing these things that have always been there because they can't go to the court system and say, we've created this new thing simply to have an interest in this case. They have to show that they have always had an interest in these ideas. And it becomes tricky because when you dive into Mormonism, you realize pretty quickly that homosexuality is essentially not addressed at all in any official way by the church until the 1970s. And so the church has to be careful here that it doesn't say in any of these statements that its position against homosexuality is relatively new. And so they're couching the words in language that it's always been there. And so in this first document uh, that came out in 91 of, uh, November of 91, we call upon members to renew their commitment. So it's this idea that it's always been there. We've always taught this. And legally, they have to take that position. They can't go to the courts and say, we just issued this statement last week, and this now gives us an interest in the case. Right. They can't say, hey, we just came up with this interest, and now we want in, because that would look like exactly what it is, which is a legal document masquerading as a doctrinal proclamation for a political purpose. And you're right, when President Hinckley uh, introduces the Family Proclamation General Conference, October 1995, we are familiar with what he says about with, with so, so much, much of sophistry, sophistry that, is that has passed off as truth, with so much of deception concerning standards and values, with so much of allurement and enticement to take on the slow stain of the world, we have felt to warn and forewarn. In furtherance of this, we of the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve Apostles now issue a proclamation to the Church and to the world as a declaration and reaffirmation 
of standards, doctrines, and practices relative to the family, which the prophets, seers, and revelators of this Church have repeatedly stated throughout its history. I now take the opportunity of reading to you this proclamation. Reaffirmation of standards, doctrines, and practices relative to the family which the prophets, seers, and revelators of this church have repeatedly stated throughout its history. Every time they're saying that, they're saying that for a political reason. And it's just what you said to say, hey, we've always been saying this. We're just putting it in a proclamation now. And, of course, the problem with that is exactly what Elder Oak said in his talk. Because what he says, remember... Uh, I'll find the quote here in a second, but he says, hey, when this idea came up of writing a proclamation about the family, there were those who said, okay, doesn't everybody know what those are already? I mean, it's 1995, for crying out loud. I joined the church in 1978, and for a long time before that, and continuing to this day, the Mormons are known for their focus on the family. Everybody knows that about Mormons, Mormons and non-Mormons alike. But this is something that didn't make sense to some people, and I'm expecting this may have been some members of the Quorum of the Twelve, because I don't know who else it is that uh, Elder Oaks would have been talking to about it. Here's the quote. He says, It was a surprise to some who thought the doctrinal truths about marriage and the family were well understood without restatement. Well, yeah, they were. So what's the point of having this proclamation? None, except for the fact that they're going to insert into it the anti-gay marriage language. And, and they've got to walk kind of a tightrope here. It's got to be anti-gay enough to give them standing, but not, to, not so anti-gay that they look like the Westboro Baptist Church. So they are walking kind of a tightrope. And that's what they end up doing. And if I can say one other thing here, I don't want to hog this show, but I do want to say this while I'm thinking about this. Um, so once this uh, proclamation is issued, then it is used by the church in a second attempt to um, be able to file briefing in the Hawaii case. And this is, uh, I'm looking at the document right here. It's the Amicus Curie Brief of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It can be found at a link at that website on the Rational Faith um, blog, which you're going to link to. But here's the deal. Fascinatingly, not only do they attach the proclamation as an exhibit to this document, under the heading of the summary, this is number one, summary of the interests of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You see, this is what they've got to show. They've got to show the interest that they have in the case. And this is about half a page long, is all it is on page four of this briefing. And what they do is they quote from the proclamation on the family. And what they quote from is exactly the same parts, for the most part, that Elder Oaks quotes from a couple of weeks ago. And they quote, The family is ordained of God. Marriage between man and woman is essential to his eternal plan. Children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity Happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the part about warning that the disintegration of the family will bring upon everybody the wrath of God, 
a little bit different language, but also the last part, calling upon responsible citizens and officers of government everywhere to promote those measures designed to maintain and strengthen the family, right? So that's what they quote. And what they end up doing is, in my mind, they tip their hand a little bit here because they quote in the brief to seek permission to file briefing in Hawaii. The very parts of the family proclamation that were put in there in the first place in order to be quoted so that they could be able to make this motion. Mm. And, and it's interesting, and, I'm, and I hope the listener can kind of follow along with the, the timeline as we keep jumping into the proclamation and applying the process of what we're going, what the church is going through in this timeline and showing how it comes out in the end in this final document. We, we were talking about 91. We talked about them issuing a document um, on, in November of 91, just a, a letter from the first presidency, this first attempt at, at showing some interest. That, that case is then heard in October of 1992, and the appellate ruling comes down in May of 93. It says if the government planned to prevent same-sex marriages, it needed a compelling reason to do so. This was a decision of the court. Otherwise, limiting... Who one may marry is sex-based discrimination, which is unconstitutional in Hawaii. The high court sent the case back to the trial court for review using the higher court's guidelines, which gave the legislature time to take action during its next session in January 94. And it's important to note that as soon as this happens, the, the LDS church and the Catholic church join forces. And and they are adamant that they're going to team up and and try to squash same-sex marriage in Hawaii. And so they join together, work together to provide expert testimony. They they hire lobbyists together, reviewing legislation legislation, and generally working behind the scenes and out of the spotlights. Nobody wants to be public for being anti-gay um, marriage, and so they'll throw money at it. And they'll do things to to help sway the court system uh, through lobbying and other means, but they don't want to be public in doing this. And you see this come about again in Prop 8 in California, where the church was trying to be quieter, trying to act like it was uh, just members of the church who were carrying these things out. And, and come to find out in the last few months, we've learned that um, the church had a very organized structure to carry out Prop 8 in California. <clears throat> and, and I, and I want to kind of just get us up to um, where the proclamation comes out. The first presidency issues another letter dated February 1st, 1994. This is another attempt at trying to show interest in the case. And this language actually was in the handbook, Church Handbooks of Instruction, beginning in 1998, and it remained there until its 2010 revision. It said... Marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God to fulfill the eternal destiny of his children. The union of husband and wife assures perpetuation of the race and provides a divinely ordained setting for the nurturing and teaching of children. This sacred family setting with father and mother and children firmly committed to each other and to righteous living offers the best hope for avoiding many of the ills that afflict society. We encourage members to appeal to legislatures, legislators, judges, and other government officials 
to preserve the purposes and sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman and to reject all efforts to give legal authorization or other official approval to support marriages between persons of the same gender. So here's their second attempt at getting a legal interest in this process in Hawaii. But in February of 1995, the church announced that it had decided to file a petition to intervene in the Bear case in order to protect freedom of religion to solemnize marriages between man and woman under Hawaiian law. And it was this document that in February of 95, they use to try and show that there is, they have an interest in the case. Elder Halstrom is quoted at this time as saying, there are times when certain moral issues become so compelling that the churches have a duty to make their feelings known. The trouble is the court didn't buy it. The trial court eventually rejected the petition on grounds that the church had failed to demonstrate it had any property or transaction in the case at hand, and the Supreme Court upheld that decision. This is huge because it demonstrates that the church is trying to get legal standing, and the church must have understood that whatever they were doing up to this point wasn't cutting it. And now they're being told that to have uh, a clear theological interest uh, in this case, they have to show in their theology, like, we have reason to be invested here. Otherwise, legally, the court system isn't buying it. And RFM, I want to lead into you talking about how President Hinckley goes about announcing it, but we at least need to make it clear here that at the time when the church is told that their last, their second document, the last one they, they uh, shared with the court, didn't cut it, at this very same time, President Howard W. Hunter is ailing, and he, and he dies and, and passes away. Uh, he had served as LDS president from the time that President Benson died in May of 94 until March 3rd of 1995. And then on March 12th, 1995, Gordon B. Hinckley becomes president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so you can see, like, there's a lot of bad health with the prophet of the church through this entire process, and yet these people are rushing behind the scenes to get all this stuff to continually keep it moving. So now President Hinckley's the prophet. Would you maybe take us into how President Hinckley and the church, perhaps some of how they create, but more importantly, how they go about announcing this in conference? Yes, I'd be happy to. I just want to insert here so I don't forget about it later because it applies here. This is the part in Elder Oak's recent talk where he feels it is necessary to say that they had begun working on this proclamation over a year before it was announced in October of 1995. You remember that part of his talk? Well, they're writing letters, and actually I think they're first presidency letters, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're writing first presidency letters, but they're not working on this proclamation apparently because reason would tell us they don't start working on the proclamation until the second letter has failed to get them standing in the Hawaii case, which is why it actually takes about seven months before it can be ready for the October 1995 general conference. My perspective is that Elder Oaks knows this perfectly well because as he says, he's only one of seven apostles, now six, who was alive at the time. He knows it's an issue and therefore he feels compelled to push 
the initial impetus and the beginning of the creation of the proclamation on the family back before it would have been an issue they wanted to work on to get uh, standing. So he's, he's basically saying, oh, we started this a long time ago, uh, and we started way before we even knew, uh, knew that we needed it. He doesn't come out and say why, but he makes a point of saying it. I think that's why. Okay, going to what happens. What hey, we, can I stop you for a second? Yeah, please. Just to add some more context, I, I don't think Elder Oaks is lying. What I think he's doing is he's fudging the words a little bit so that the, so that the people in the audience or the junior members of the 12 who weren't there can see a certain picture of how this happened, whereas he's also couching his words carefully so as not to be dishonest. I think in his mind, he might point back to his original writing in 1984, and he might point at these first two attempts by the church to get legal interests that failed as the early stirrings of the proclamation, if that makes sense. And so I don't, I don't want to say Elder Oaks is being dishonest, but I do think that if we all sat in a room and we just laid out with him the complete context of this, I think it would be clear that the proclamation is an afterthought when these other two documents completely fall on their face. I think you're right, and I would say he's doing more than fudging his words a little bit. He's fudging all over the place. Elder Oaks is a mother fudger. (laughs) But back to your question. Sorry, I got diverted there. Back to your question. What we know is is that it appears that this became uh, something that they wanted to do. The letters didn't work. They wanted to do the proclamation. They find out in March that the letters aren't going to work. And what we know is is that in October of 1995, this becomes a huge rush to get this proclamation done before the October 1995 General Conference because they want it announced, they want it read publicly in that conference. And the reason that I say we know this is because two weeks before the October 1995 General Conference, President Hinckley meets with the General Relief Society presidency to talk about their plans for their general meeting, which, of course, was held, I guess it would be held a week before general conference like it is now. But the word is, oh, by the way, the Relief Society presidency at the time, the president is Lane Jack. Her counselors are Eileen Clyde, first counselor, and Chieko Okazaki, the second counselor. So there's a meeting with them about this newfangled family proclamation. And so President Hinckley says, um, you know, we got this proclamation on the family, want to introduce it at conference during the course of the meeting, not sure if it is, uh, you know, want to do it in priesthood meeting or Relief Society meeting, but, you know, we'd really like to do it in the general women's meeting. And so he asked them if that would be okay with it, and they say, well, of course, we'll do whatever you tell us to do. So they allow President Hinckley to introduce the proclamation at the end of the women's meeting. Now, not only that, this is a minor inconvenience. I mean, he's going to go in there now. This is like two weeks before their conference. They've got their speakers. They've selected their talks. They have them all written out. They have them timed. Everything's orchestrated. It's only two weeks before, and President Hinckley's going to introduce the proclamation at the end of it. Now, they probably already had 
a, um, a segment of time at the end for the keynote speaker. I think that's what you call the person at the end, whoever it is who gives the closing address. And that's always going to be a member of the first presidency, right? Because it's a man who has to speak at the end of the woman's session. It's still that way today. But they were all going to talk. They already had their theme ready, and their theme is on diversity. Uh, I know that sounds incredible, but back in 1995, the theme of the women's conference was going to be on diversity. And so Diverse the word- families, right? Diverse families, like single moms and dads who stay at home and, and grandmas and grandpas who are raising the grandkids. Like, diverse families was the theme. They were told, well, you really need to scrap that because we want your talks now to reflect this proclamation. And so instead of the diversity that you're going to be talking about, uh, they are told that they wanted to focus their remarks, change your talks and focus your remarks so they would address the idea of traditional families instead of this diversity thing they already had planned out. So this becomes much less than a minor inconvenience. It becomes a huge major nuisance for the Relief Society presidency. And we know that because two of those members, who were actually the first and second counselors, later talked about what happened in 1995 with this meeting. Eileen Clyde, who was the first counselor at the time. This is Bill Real, and this is outside of the conversation that Radio Free Mormon and I had. We're going to play the Eileen Clyde audio I just want to give you a heads up. It is not uh, a very good quality, and so I apologize for that. But I hope that you can listen closely. It lasts for about three minutes, and uh, it would show, I think, to a great extent, the process that the Relief Society presidency saw going on behind the proclamation. So with that, here's the Eileen Clyde audio. I will tell you something. If you promise, you won't tell anyone. This was in 1995, and our presidency and board had been working for a whole year on putting together the channel meeting, which we wanted to focus on families of faith within the church who who had all kinds of differences. There were... um, families with father, mother, children at home. There were single-parent families, in some cases the father being in the household, in some cases the mother. We have met these families of many descriptions of um, in the church, and we found that the anchor in their lives was the church and the gospel, and that they were thriving and surviving and doing what they had to do because of that. So we spent nearly a year putting together a meeting with um, using visuals and other things to represent these different families. About two weeks before general conference, President Hinckley called us in, talked with us for an hour and a half. We could not understand why we were there, except he was inquiring about all kinds of things and he said, we're going to have to have you change your general meeting. Um, we would like you to address the traditional family. We do not wish to demonstrate the many kinds of families at this time. And he, and he said lovingly and intelligently, but that was a bit of a shock to us. Then he said, I have a decision to make, and I've been making it as I sat here this morning. He said, we have 
forthcoming a proclamation on the panel. And he said, I've been trying to decide when to have it announced. And he said, I could do it in general conference, I could do it in the priesthood session, I could do it in your meeting. And he said, Paul, well, I've sat here today, I've decided that I'd like to do it in your religious society meeting. Now, brothers and sisters, and those of you who feel that way, we had not at that point seen the family proclamation. We saw it when you saw it when it was presented to the church. Um, I'm still wondering about the wisdom of that because we were the like to have. But on the other hand, we can get more of this. We can get on many levels. But it was done in 1995 while we were going to take the And folks, you heard it here first. <laughs> Now that's going to be the not to tell <laughs> This recounting that I've just given is not something I made up. This is what the first counselor, Eileen Clyde, said at a women's conference at Claremont Graduate University in 2011. That's what she said happened, and she was there, so I guess she would know. Now, the second counselor, Sister Okazaki, talked about what happened at this uh, meeting regarding the introduction of the proclamation, and she talked about it with Greg Prince in an interview in November of 2005, and that ended up being published in a spring 2012 issue of Dialogue. And this is what Sister Okazaki says about this. In 1995, I'm quoting her, in 1995, when the family of proclamation to the world was written, the Relief Society presidency was asked to come to a meeting. We did, and they read this proclamation. It was all finished. The only question was whether they should present it at the priesthood meeting or at the Relief Society meeting. It didn't matter to me where it was presented. What I wanted to know was, how come we weren't consulted? That's the question that she wants to know. I'm not sure if she actually asked the question or if that's something that ran through her mind, but this is what she says in recalling what happened. She goes on, they just asked us which meeting to present it in, and we said whatever President Hinckley decides is fine with us. He decided to do it at the Relief Society meeting. The apostle who was our liaison said, isn't it wonderful that he made the choice to present it at the Relief Society meeting? Well, this is what Sister Okazaki says, well, that was fine, but as I read it, I thought that we could have made a few changes in it, talking about, apparently, the Relief Society. I mean... It is a proclamation on the family, and families usually do have a female component in it, but they were not consulted. It was already finished. She thought that they could have made a few changes in it. And then Sister Okazaki concludes with this comment, sometimes I think they get so busy that they forget that we are there. And, and I should say, you're right. I mean, like, she's, she's, a little, she's a little hurt by the fact that she's not consulted, but it seems like she's naive it seems like the Relief Society presidency is naive to what has been going on behind the scenes over the course of the last 18 to 24 months surrounding this case. And that she seems to think and implies perhaps that the whole Relief Society presidency thought, like, this is just this new document and the brethren put it together and darn it, they should have included us, but they didn't. So I guess so what? And and I don't think she has a sense at this time when she does this interview of what all was going into this proclamation and why it was being written. And I should also say, too, 
it makes sense that President Hinckley would want to uh, put this forth in the Relief Society uh, general meeting. And, and the reason being that it gets him in front of this thing a week earlier, and time is of the essence. They cannot, they absolutely cannot afford to miss the October conference 1995 deadline. Like if they don't get it out in this conference, it's six more months, and by then this court case has already moved past them having a chance to jump into it. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and also, I just have this feeling that, you know, if we're going to inconvenience anybody, we want to inconvenience the women and not inconvenience the priesthood. Right. Yeah, because in the women's session, you only have one presiding authority there, right? In the in the priesthood session, you've got all these top leaders, and they've they've spent so much time in prayer on these talks, and it'd just be much easier to inconvenience a few sisters. Yeah, and can I also just say this one other thing? In the, uh, you know, Gordon B. Hinckley doesn't just stand up at the end and read the proclamation. He does read the proclamation, but he gives a lot of comments before he reads it. And one of those comments talks specifically about gay marriage. There are those who would have have us believe believe in the validity of what they choose to call same-sex marriage. Our hearts reach out to those who struggle with feelings of affinity for the same gender. We remember you before the Lord. We sympathize with you. We regard you as our brothers and our sisters. However, we cannot condone immoral practices on your part any more than we can condone immoral practices on the part of others. He does talk about other things in his introductory comments, but this is a full paragraph there. It shows that gay marriage and what he calls uh, feelings of affinity for the same gender is definitely on his mind as he's introducing the proclamation on the family. Yeah, and and so immediately after... The, the proclamation is delivered in the General Women's Conference. Um, you, you have the courts beginning to kind of re-engage this, and the church and its political organization, Hawaii's Future Today, that's what it was called, this, this entity they formed so that they wouldn't be the name out in front and they could supply money and supply resources. Uh, Hawaii's Future Today filed the amicus briefs for the lower courts to consider. The the lower course court ends up hearing the case on September 10th, 1996, and issued its ruling on December 3rd, 1996, finding that same-sex couples were entitled to receive marriage license. Um, it, it, the case was again appealed to the Hawaii, to Hawaii Supreme Court, and this time on April 14th, the LDS Church filed the amicus brief. And and I know you're pronouncing it amicus. I've heard it amicus. I hope it's one of those that's tomato, tomato, and I'm not looking foolish, uh, kind of like Glenn did on infants with primer and primer. But Yeah, what is um, wrong with that a, guy, Glenn? Every idiot knows it's primer. Right. Gee, right. primer? That's pain. Every Hello. Every Hello, Glenn. Yeah, because it took, it took Radio Free Mormon telling me that I was pronouncing it wrong. For me to fix it. Um, in this brief, the church cited the proclamation on the family as evidence of the on the of the central. I'm sorry, evidence of the centrality of traditional marriage in Mormon doctrine and practice for the first time. 
Think about this. For the first time ever, the church is talking about the centrality of traditional marriage in Mormon doctrine and practice. Because here's why it's important. If you look at all the religions over the last 300, 400, 500 years, we are on a very short list of religions that have doctrinally contradicted this very traditional definition of marriage. We practiced polygamy. We had people in marriages that were not legally and lawfully wed. We had people in marriages with underage girls. We had people in marriages that um, included more than one woman to a man, and in some instances, more than one man to a woman, in ways that completely violate the traditional definition of marriage. And yet here you have the church in this amicus brief citing the proclamation as evidence that, hey, we're Mormon, and what we Mormons have stood for forever is the traditional definition of marriage and will be darned if somebody breaks that traditional definition. It seems almost crazy. It's almost like Mormonism took all of its polygamy history all of its doctrinal tangents tied to polygamy and just threw them into a black hole and pretend they don't exist anymore for the sake of being able to fight against uh, same-sex marriage. No, you're right. Not only did the church practice polygamy, but but practicing polygamy was required for the highest degrees of exaltation. And in the court states, one of the requirements for filing an amicus and you, how did you say that other word? Curé? Curie. Curie. So amicus curie, or friend of the court, brief, is that the petitioner submitting the brief must present to the court valid reasons why the court should allow the petitioner, who is not a party to the case, to be heard, to the ma- heard on the matter. Conveniently, the proclamation, a, the, the family, a proclamation to the world, ties all the major family-related policies and teachings together in one place, making it easy to include as an exhibit in a legal brief. And it's exactly what they use it for. Yes, with a healthy dose of homophobia thrown in. Right. And and so now, and, and I have to, I joined the church just after this. I joined the church in April of 96, And President Hinckley delivering this proclamation was all the buzz. And it did two things. One is I thought, oh my goodness, revelation happens here all the time. I I was sadly disappointed that that's not the case. But I thought early on it was. The other thing it did, none of the membership could had the ability or the information to wrap their heads around why this had been created. So all of us essentially did what exactly the church hoped we would, which was take its encouragement to frame this thing and stick it on the walls of our houses, our homes, put it right by the front door. And so the church could now look at the legal system in Hawaii and every case that followed and say, look, our Mormons adore this doctrine. They frame it. They put it on the walls of their home right next to their front door so they see it every time they come in and out of the house. And 
as a Latter-day Saint in 1996, I did just that, and I had no, I had no realization of any of this legal battle going on behind the scenes, and I don't know that it would have changed anything then, but it certainly feels icky to me now, if that makes any sense. You mean like you were tricked? Yeah, like I like I played the game not knowing what the game was, and now looking back, I feel like I was uh, a fool in inside of a, a an entire worked up plan that I had no idea of. Well, yeah, because what this is is a political document created for a legal purpose, and it's masquerading as doctrine. And when I joined the church, we used to look at the Catholic Church and criticize them for doing the exact same kind of stuff in their history. In fact, we called that part of the great apostasy. See, and here's my next point, okay? And you know what even makes it crazier, Bill? Elder Oaks has given this talk in general conference talking about traditional marriage and how the proclamation is in support of it. And all these other things, and by the way, the proclamation is revelation, right? We'll get to that later. Elder Oaks is a polygamist. Yes, he is. And let's take it one step further. Elder Oaks in his talk two weeks ago made the statement that marriage is for the uh, multiplying and replenishing the earth for the procreation of the human family. And Elder Oaks, whose wife, first wife passed away, and I'm, and I'm terribly sorry that that's the case. She passed, and he, he ended up marrying a second uh, woman. Um, she was, I don't know how old she was, but I think she was 55, well past menopause, not going to bear any more children. When you make the legal argument in your general conference talk that Mormon doctrine is for marriage, to be able to procreate and multiply and replenish the earth. And your second wife, you took, after she is no longer able to bear children, forces us to see that there is some kind of exception to the very rule that you have hard-lined laid out. Yeah, that's a good point. By the way, to be clear, I'm not accusing Elder Oaks of actually practicing polygamy in the sense that he is married at the same time under civil law, to two different women, but he is married in the eyes of the church in the temple right now to two different women, his first wife who passed away, to whom he is still sealed in the temple, and his second wife to whom he is sealed in the temple. So what we have is the spectacle of a man who is practicing polygamy. He has two wives as he's speaking and championing traditional marriage between a man and a woman, and discounting any other kind of marriage, which he himself is practicing even as he is speaking. Right. And, and when he stands up in general conference and says that marriage is between the doctrine of the church is a marriage between a man and a woman legally and lawfully wed, like our history doesn't support that. When he stands up and says that marriage is for the procreation of the human family, his own marriage doesn't support that. When he says that marriage is about being fully, having full fidelity with that person, our history, and, and just to go right to our founding prophet, Joseph Smith's dishonesty, is, shows a lack of fidelity with him and Emma. Like, I, I, I kind of expect 
us to be able to form ideas and opinions and principles and arguments in the church in a way that are actually defensible. And unfortunately, and I don't mean this as any kind of offensive statement, unfortunately for me, it feels way too easy to deconstruct this entire talk and show that it is deeply flawed and not based on any sort of logic or rationale or reality or historical context. Yes. One other point. It's not just our history, Bill. It's our scriptures. Section 132 doesn't support that. Right. Our very own theology contradicts the theology of the proclamation. And more than that, the extra addendums that Elder Oaks is putting on those statements within his general conference talk. So it's important to note, right, we're two, we're two decades plus removed. I think Elder Oaks said it had been 23 years, 22, 23 years past the time the proclamation is announced. And it has become quasi-scripture, right? Like, we've hung it in our homes, we refer to it in general conference talks, we uh, use it to explain what our doctrine is, and yet it's never really been canonized. It really isn't doctrine. It's not binding on the saints. It's, it's almost confusing how we've taken this peripheral document, and it's important to note, Elder Packer made a big deal out of this, out of the idea that this is one of only a handful of proclamations the church has issued. Five, I believe. A proclamation in the church is a a significant major announcement. Very few of them have been issued from the beginning of the church. They're significant. They're revelatory. And because it's one of five proclamations, it is so important. This is so important to the church. And the reality is, if you go read what the other four proclamations are, nobody knows what they are, and they have no bearing on Mormonism at the present day. So the real definition of a proclamation in Mormonism, if you're going to compare it to other proclamations, is to say, yeah, it means something in the moment, but 25 years later, nobody even remembers it. Nobody remembers it. Now, Bill, you know more about Mormonism than most members of the church. And you had never even heard of a proclamation before this. In other words, you didn't know there were any other proclamations before this because they are inconsequential in the current teaching of the church. It's never brought up. It's not in our manuals. We don't have a lesson on the proclamations of the church. We don't have a conversation surrounding them. The context of those proclamations were specific to a situation in their given moment, and they weren't utilized outside of that. Like, like if we define proclamations by what the other four proclamations were, they're, they're documents that are only important in that given space and time and are irrelevant to the church a decade, two, or three later. Yes. It just seemed odd. It, it, and it seems like, you, and I think you saw this too, uh, RFM, but you saw this idea that Elder Oaks, and I think you implied this early on in the in the podcast, maybe even uh, explicitly, that Elder Oaks, I think more than talking to the membership of the church and trying to get them to bolster this thing up and stand behind it, it almost felt like he was talking to the junior apostles who were not there, especially when he says, look, there's seven of us still alive. And like you said, now it's six. Elder Hale's passed a day later. And... 
So there's six of them. And he says, look, there were six of us alive then. He's almost rubbing it in the nose of those who are junior to say, like, look, we we prayed about this. This was revelation. Don't you dare get rid of this thing. Yes, he does. And I think he makes it really clear who this talk is addressed to. And it's those who consider this family proclamation, I'm quoting him now, those who consider this family proclamation as just a statement of policy that should be changed. That's who he's addressing it to. Those who think it's, it's a statement of policy, which, which is what it is. It's what it's always been. Should it be changed? Yes, it should be changed. But he doesn't want it to be changed, so he's going to divide and conquer, say that anybody who thinks it's not revelation is them, and anybody who believes it is revelation is us, and it's revelation, it's not a statement of policy, it should not be changed. In fact, it's not going to change. Yeah, and he even, in the same section, and, and, and perhaps you're even kind of hitting on it, when he gives this idea like, this is what we teach, and it's not going to change in the future. Like, this is what we teach now, and this is what we're going to teach in the future. He he almost makes an argument that is ignorant of our church's history. Like, there was a time we practiced polygamy, which completely violates the definitions he just gave. And we told everybody we weren't going to change it, and then just a few later years later, we changed it. It's almost as if he's unaware of how quickly... Mormonism can do a 180 once it comes to grips that something simply is not tenable. And, and I think, I think he senses that some of his junior brethren and membership in the church, especially the younger generation, perceive this position as untenable. And he's simply using his 15 minutes during this conference to try and dig as much of a wall around this thing as he can to paint it as far into a corner as he can to try and lock the church into having to hold this thing up. That's exactly what he's doing. He is politically maneuvering in order to try and ensure the continuation of a political document. And uh, it should be noted on this uh, Rational Faith blog, I think she ends really beautifully, and, and she gives some, some conclusion kind of to the Hawaii issue, and then she talks about the, the use of the proclamation going forward. She says, in 1998, Hawaii's legislature passed a constitutional amendment exempting same-sex marriage from sexual discrimination and noting that marriage in Hawaii would be between one man and one woman. Uh, Latter-day Saints in Catholic lobbyists and political groups working together under the banner of Save Traditional Marriage 98, which grew out of the group Hawaii's Future Today, uh, organized in late 1995, were influential in getting both the legal language and the grassroots support for the amendment. When the Bear Appeal was finally heard again in 1999, same-sex marriage was found unconstitutional in Hawaii, and it remained so until December 2013. So we should recognize, like, the church won the battle, for, and, and it held out for a lot of years, but in December of 2013, they ended up still losing the war in Hawaii. And Hawaii today allows same-sex marriage. 
It should be noted as well that the proclamation on the family began its national political role when it was read into the official records of the U.S. House of Representatives on November 17, 1995, four days after President Hinckley had met with U.S. President Bill Clinton. It has been used in dozens of court cases, legislative sessions, hearings, and conventions in the United States and around the world wherever issues of same-sex marriage, gender roles, abortion, family values, or defensive marriage acts have been brought up. And it should be interesting, too. You mentioned this before we went on the air, uh, RFM. You, you talked a little bit about President Packer and the way in which he worded one of his talks and what actually was the reality of what was going on there. Do you mind just touching that, and, and then we'll kind of go over some closing remarks and any other thoughts that you and I have? Yeah, if you could pull up his remarks, because I think you have them in front of you. Elder Oaks just gave a history of how the family proclamation came to be, but he's not the first apostle to talk about that. Elder Packer talked about it as well, except he sort of gives a different kind of story. Do you have that in front of you? I, Yeah, I do. This was in February 2008. This was a worldwide leadership training meeting. So it's important that we compare and contrast Elder Packer's words with what Elder Oaks just told us two weeks ago. Here's what Elder Packer said. Not too Not many, too many years, years ago, ago, there came a movement in the world, came a movement in the world uh, having to do with the family. And the United Nations called a council on the family in Beijing, China. We sent delegations to that council on the family and to other councils that were held. And then it was announced that one of them would be held uh, near our headquarters. And we thought, well, if they're coming here, we had better proclaim ourselves. A proclamation in the church is a, a significant major announcement. Very few of them have been issued from the beginning of the church. They're significant. They're revelatory. And at that time, this was a little more than 10 years ago, the brethren issued the family a proclamation to the world. And it is uh, scripture-like in uh, its power. Now, you will hear in the other presentations that are made many references to the proclamation on the family. I thought it would be of good purpose to read it to you. We know we've read it, but uh, if we read it slowly and carefully, articulated very well, it may have more revelation than you thought was there. When you wonder why we are the way we are and why we will do the things we do and why we will not do some of the things that we will not do, you can find the authority for that in this proclamation on the family. There are times when we are accused of being intolerant because we won't accept and do the things that are uh, supposed to be the norm in society. Well, the things we won't do, we won't do. And the things we won't do, we can't do, because the standard we follow is given of him. Let me just read the proclamation to you, and uh, you listen to it, and see if you don't see in it the uh, things that are foremost in society, in politics, in government, in religion now, that are causing the most concern and difficulty, and you'll find answers there. And the answers that are there are the answers of the church. Wait a second, what, what, what? 
foremost in society in politics? Nice tip of the hand there, Elder Packer. In society, in politics, in government, in religion, now that are causing the most concern and difficulty. It's interesting because you're right. He he ends it by saying, thank goodness we came up with this thing because it's allowed us to use it to bolster our doctrine and theology in society, politics, government, religion. But he starts off by saying, like, we didn't have any clue why we were going to – we just knew one day, like, oh my goodness, the United Nations is coming here. And if they're coming here, we better proclaim ourselves. It's almost like it's an afterthought, like it's just this – this just new thought in his mind and in the brethren's mind that they just needed to come up with a document. Um, you had a date for this uh, United Nations Council in Beijing, China, right? Yes, I, I had read this story by Elder Packer because the, where he puts it, he says we came up or we came up with the idea that we needed a proclamation sometime after the United Nations called the Council on the Family in Beijing. Let me read that again. The United, this is Elder Packer, the United Nations called the Council on the Family in Beijing, China. Yeah. We sent delegations to that Council on the Family and to other councils that were held. And then it was announced that one of them would be held near our headquarters. And we thought, well, if they are coming here, we had better proclaim ourselves. So you can see that according to his story, the idea for the necessity of having this proclamation happened sometime, and perhaps substantially after, this United Nations Council on the Family in Beijing. So I thought I would do a little research and see when that was held. Now, first off, there does not appear to be any United Nations Council on the Family anywhere. What it is is a United Nations Council on, or World Conference on Women. That is what it is, I think, that he's referring to. I'm not able to find any conference on the family, but I can find the, the Fourth World Conference on Women, which was held in Beijing, China, convened by the United Nations, September 4th through 15th of 1995. So hang on here a second. If this is what he's talking about, and it sure looks like he is, this conference is held in September, the first two weeks of September of 1995. They are held less than a month before the General Conference Women's Meeting, at which the proclamation on the family is actually announced. So how can it possibly be that Elder Packer is correct when he's saying the United Nations called a council on the family in Beijing, China, first part of September 1995, he doesn't include that part. And then he says, we send delegations to that council on the family, first part of September 1995, and to other councils that were held, which sounds like other councils after, and then it was announced that one of them would be held near our headquarters. And we thought, well, if they are coming here, we had better proclaim ourselves. How does that happen in real world time? I don't get it, because it sure sounds like the way he's describing it, the first idea for the proclamation on the family would have been after the proclamation itself had been announced. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because you see this legal process working itself out behind the scenes. You recognize they've got to develop a statement for this amicus brief. You recognize that Elder Oaks is wanting this to have a certain look to it as he's delivering it. 
And it seems like President Packer is taking a very different approach, which is he wants it to appear like this thing was created through almost instantaneous revelation. Like, like we brethren went to this conference in China and we heard they were having a conference here and we got together for our Thursday meeting in the Salt Lake Temple. Jesus shows up in the room, tells us what this document's supposed to say. It's revelation from the other side. And isn't it amazing how quickly God can invent and come up with something when, when he's willing to give a revelation on it. When it seems like the data points to this being much more drawn out, much more meticulous, much more counseling going back and forth. And I also want to give you a moment to talk about this idea of the, the voice change that Elder Oaks goes into, not the tone, but the way in which he forms his words and in, in maybe from a legal perspective what that indicates. Oh, sure. I'd be happy to do that because um, Elder Oaks is a lawyer. He chooses his words carefully to convey what he wants to convey and to not convey what he does not want to convey. If we're to believe what Elder Neil Anderson says at the end of his conference talk, that he talked to Elder Oaks and Elder Oaks told him that he will usually go like through 12 to 15 drafts on a conference talk, then we know that he's going over it very thoroughly and very carefully. So let me find this part. This is where he's talking about the revelation that comes, the revelation that comes about this document and why it is at the end of his talk that he testifies that it is revelation and it's the will of the Lord to the Latter-day Saints, and they need to get on board with it. Otherwise, they're going to be off the boat. Here's the paragraph. The inspiration identifying the need for a proclamation on the family came to the leadership of the church over 23 years ago. See, that's the place where he backdates it to more than a year before they were kicked out of the Hawaii case. Right, so he backdates it makes it sound like there's more time involved. President Packer says within a within the time frame of less than a month, we put this thing together. Yes. And I may have misspoken there. He backdates it to at least a year. The idea came to them over a year before they announced it in general conference. But he wants to get it backdated before the necessity arose because they were kicked out of the Hawaii case. So Elder, Oaks wants it, Elder Oaks wants it to go back more than a year before the actual announcement of the proclamation. President Packer wants you to think that they came up with this thing miraculously, spontaneously, within three weeks of general conference. Yes, that's what I see. Um, and then Elder Oaks goes on, It was a surprise to some who thought the doctrinal truths about marriage and the family were well understood without restatement. Yeah, like you said, they're acting like the whole world was hunky-dory on traditional marriage up until 1995, and then the proclamation was issued, and now look at how crappy things have got since then, and this was a prophetic document because we had no idea how much we needed now when it was issued in 1995. Anybody who says that obviously wasn't watching Three's Company on TV back in the 70s. This has been going on for a long time. Yeah, it, it is interesting how we... We pretend as if the things we're dealing with just suddenly started happening, and we don't give any historical context to the fact that this document was created in the midst of these things happening. 
Right, and from Bonnie Oscarson's point of view, she can't because she wants it to be prophetic. Therefore, she restructures history to support that conclusion. Going on, you actually asked me a question a while ago, and I'm sorry I got off on all these tangents, but it was about the language. Uh, Elder Oaks goes on, nevertheless, even in spite of the fact that there were those who couldn't understand why it was we had to say the same thing we've already said for 100 years, nevertheless, we felt the confirmation. Well, what confirmation is this? He says the inspiration, identifying the need for a proclamation on the family, came to the leadership of the church over 23 years ago. Who did it come to? What kind of inspiration is this? What are we talking about? He tries to use all of the key words for his audience without ever explaining anything about what happened. This is part of his vagueness, his shiftiness in his use of language, and it's very similar to what President Nelson did when he did the same thing with the November 2015 policy two months later, when all of a sudden he says, oh, by the way, that was a revelation. He uses the same kind of language that says nothing and describes nothing, but uses these terms that Mormons are supposed to understand, hey, God is talking. So he says um, inspiration came, and, and people didn't understand why, but nevertheless, we felt the confirmation. They felt the con- What is that? They felt an undescribed confirmation of an undescribed inspiration. See how he's not saying anything? We felt the confirmation, and we went to work. At least he's using a transitive sentence there. Now, here's the thing you were talking about. A transitive sentence means I did something. We did something. It identifies the people who are doing whatever it is that they're doing. But now, he says we went to work, but suddenly he shifts into the intransitive where he says things were done, not that we did these things, but that things were done. This has long been noted and observed to be a way that people, politicians primarily, use in order to avoid taking responsibility or being blamed for something. George Orwell wrote about this type of thing. Here's what I mean. Uh, we uh, Okay, nevertheless, we felt the confirmation and we went to work. Now he shifts. Subjects were identified and discussed by members of the Quorum of the Twelve for nearly a year. Sorry, that has Quorum of the Twelve. It's the next sentence. Language was proposed, reviewed, and revised. Now, it doesn't say who proposed the language. It doesn't say who reviewed the language. It doesn't say who revised the language. He wants his audience to understand that it's members of the Quorum of the Twelve doing all that, but he doesn't actually say that's the case. Right. And so you're saying it's an intentional way to articulate a, a position or a historical way of telling an event so that the audience walks away with one understanding and yet you leave yourself room to not be lying when it actually wasn't that it actually didn't occur the way the audience understood right. it. Right, and I can't say that that's what he's doing, but it's obvious to me that that's uh, a possibility. It's a possibility. This is the weirdest thing, Bill. If I can just uh, go on here for just a second on a bit of a rant. What he describes here has nothing to do with the revelation that I learned as a Mormon. Okay, What he describes is a year-long process of getting together with the members of the Twelve. President Hinckley is not involved in any of this, according to him. His counselors are not involved in any of this, according to him. According to his statement, even taking his implications as gospel truth, 
This is solely a matter of the Quorum of the Twelve getting together. He says, for nearly a year, language was proposed, reviewed, and revised. Prayerfully, we continually pleaded with the Lord for his inspiration on what we should say and how we should say it. And he calls this a revelatory process. At the end of a year, now that they've gotten this thing Jimmy together, over the course of a year, a proposed text was presented to the First Presidency. So, hey, the prophet gets involved. Wow, what an idea. I thought he was the guy who was supposed to be receiving the revelation from God in the first place. But Elder Oaks completely reverses this whole process, makes it a bureaucratic committee that is putting together a position statement and now presenting it to the president of the corporation. It was presented, the proposed text was presented to the first presidency who oversee and promulgate church teaching and doctrine. Well, I guess if they oversee and promulgate church teaching and doctrine, it might be a good thing to finally include them in the process after a year, Elder Oaks. And then he says, after the presidency made further changes, the proclamation on the family was announced by the president of the church, women's meeting, September 23, 1995. So this is, okay, look, Bill, I know you didn't serve a mission, but you've been a member of the church for a long time. I did serve a mission. I've been a member for 40 years. When I went on my mission, I taught people how God talks to his prophet today. And he talks to his prophet today the same way that God spoke to Moses anciently. Moses went to the Lord in prayer. God revealed his will to the prophet, and the prophet reveals it to the people. What Elder Oaks is describing as the process of receiving revelation in the church today has nothing whatsoever to do with the way that I was taught revelation is received, with the way I taught other people that revelation was received, and frankly, it has nothing to do with what is still taught by missionaries in the church and to the members of the church as to how it is revelation is received. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's really different. You're right. It should have worked in reverse, right? President Hinckley... Elder Faust, President Monson, President Hinckley, as prophet of the church, receives revelation. God manifests himself in some way to the prophet. The prophet then takes that direction, puts it down on paper, and then perhaps he goes to the Twelve and says, hey, I've received a revelation, here's what we're going to do, and here's what it's to say. But you're right, it sounds like this worked in reverse, where the Quorum of the Twelve carried out this project, and don't think for a second that Elder Oaks wasn't at the head of this project. Elder Oaks, in 1984, as a brand new green-behind-the-ears apostle, writes the legal, essentially a thesis for the church on how they are to approach homosexuality going forward. And every step of the way, this has his trademark on it. This has his signature on it. Every step of the way... Elder Oaks is the lawyer, former Utah Supreme Court uh, justice. He's the lawyer being asked to be heavily involved in what are legal uh, matters, legal opinions, legal precedents, legal uh, amicus briefs that they're, that they're writing. Don't think for a second from 1984 to 2017 that this is not his creation. It is. This is his puppy. I can see why he felt a need to stand up in this conference and to look back at all that's happened in those junior brethren and say, essentially, I've spent the last 23 years creating this, making this, formulating why it was needed, 
putting it into action, don't you dare think about getting rid of this thing. Um, I I am no better at reading uh, minds of others than the next person, but I think that's certainly a very possible scenario. Yeah, can I just say a couple more things that are really interesting to me? Because sure. this whole talk is internally inconsistent. Not only does it not match history, it doesn't match itself in a number of places. Right after that last part of what I read from Elder Oak's talk, he says, we all learned line upon line, precept upon precept, during this, this year-long process he's talking about, we all learned line upon line, precept upon precept, as the Lord has promised. Okay, but Elder Oaks, if this proclamation doesn't say anything new, and it's merely a restatement of what has been said by all these past prophecies and revelators, it's common knowledge in the church. We're just putting it together now in a formalized proclamation. What is it that you are learning line upon line and precept upon precept? Right, especially if this, like you say, if this has always been part of our faith, this is, all, this is just stuff we're renewing our emphasis on. This is just stuff we're revisiting. This is just stuff we're, we're giving new emphasis to, but it's always been there. What is the new? What is the new thing that that had to? What was what was revealed? And that's the other thing. He doesn't say anything. In fact, you can't say anything was revealed because the whole deal is we have to say this is the way it's always been because it's about the standing and it was always about the standing. But you know, he says it's a revelatory document, Bill. Well, you know, revelatory actually has a definition, and it means revealing something hitherto unknown. That's the dictionary definition of revelatory. Now, that's not a strange definition. That makes a lot of sense, right? But how can you say, Elder Oaks, that a proclamation that's merely a rehash and a reemphasis of what's been said for a hundred years by the leaders of the church is a revelatory document? Yeah, and, and another thing is that, and I, and I don't have it pulled up here, but it's President Packer... When he talks about the the proclamation, he he says something along the lines of, it fits the definition of revelation. It's almost like he realizes it's not revelation in the way that the average member of the church would see it, but that if we simply go by the definition of revelation, it somehow still fits. And I almost wonder if what they're getting at is the idea that they needed to create it and to create it when they did, and that for them that's what they see as the revelation. Not that they not that there's anything new in it, although there is, but again you can't you can't acknowledge it because if there's something new in there and the new thing is homosexuality, then it completely defeats the purpose of what that amicus brief was designed to do in 1995. Yes, and you know, there's other things I could talk about this. I'm not going to now because I want to restrict it to what we're talking about. But, but this is the process now that the church has figured out that we can have new scripture and new revelation and totally bypass presenting it to the membership for a sustaining vote. President Nelson showed Elder Oaks how it's done and Elder Oaks did it again in this last conference. President Nelson did it with the November 2015 policy. Now Elder Oaks is doing it with the 1995 proclamation. At least for President Nelson, he declared it was revelation two months after the November policy was leaked. In Elder Oaks' case, it took 22 years 
22 years for him to finally get around and say, oh, by the way, this was revelation. And this now in the LDS Church is how a proclamation becomes a revelation. You remember Schoolhouse Rockville? Do you remember the one about the bill? And it went like, my name is Bill. I am a bill. I live on Capitol Hill. And someday I'm going to become a law. Do you remember that one? I do. <laughs> well, this is, I am a proclamation. I live in Salt Lake City. And someday I'm going to become a revelation. And and it's funny, RFM, because he's not the first person to try and do this. President Packer, a few years after, in a, a talk, I believe it was called Cleansing the Inner Vessel. 2010, I think. Yeah, 2010. He tries to call the proclamation revelation. Fifteen years ago, with the world in turmoil, the first presidency of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles issued the family a proclamation to the world, the fifth proclamation in the history of the church. It qualifies according to the definition as a revelation and uh, would do well that the members of the church to read and follow. And somebody in the Quorum of the Twelve, in the top 15, imposes that the text be changed to the word guide. And, and so Elder Oaks isn't the first one to try it, but as of right now, the text reflects what he said. He's the first one to get away with it. As to the proclamation, yes. And I'll tell you, the big change between two, the big change between Elder Packer in 2010 and Elder Oaks just now was President Nelson in January of 2016 pulling the same stunt with the November policy. Mm, like you, you're right. We have now shown a precedent to take a policy and to turn it into a revelation. And now we've shown how to take a proclamation when all former proclamations just simply weren't that important, at least not in the eternal scheme. And now we've turned it into a revelation. RFM, your your concluding thoughts. We've and let me let me at least state mine real quick because I want to give you the last word. I, I think it's silly to not think that Curtin and McConkie were involved. I think it's silly to not see the a family, the proclamation or the family, a proclamation to the world, to see that document for what it was created and intended to be, which is a go-to for every legal case going forward that has to do with same-sex marriage and religious freedom and any other any other risk the church sees to its theology if the world makes a change and it has to give in. Um, I think it's it's obvious to me that this is Elder Oak's baby, that he has been one of the main creators behind it from its inception and even going further back, all the way back to 1984 when he was a green behind the ears apostle. I think it is fair to recognize that there are new things in the proclamation that were not in our doctrine before, but that nobody in the church can acknowledge that because that defeats the purpose of what it was created to be. And I think that on some level, Elder Oaks and maybe some of the other leaders are scared to death that this document is going to be disavowed at some point and that that other brethren younger than him, when he is long gone, will have the room to make the changes necessary to make our faith more inclusive. And on some level, him knowing that this is his baby, that scares him to death. 
I agree with you. My final comment would be this. I agree with everything that you've said in your closing comments, that this is a document that was created for a political purpose. And I'm sure that the Quorum of the Twelve were involved in some way. I think lawyers were obviously involved. Elder Oaks is a lawyer and a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. He was definitely involved. Obviously, the First Presidency was involved in some way. I can understand why they think that in some way they were inspired to do this, even though it was for the political purpose of getting standing in the Hawaii case. But that much is fine with me. What I don't like is all the lying about it. Just tell us what it is. It's obvious when we know the history what it is. Why don't you tell us what it is? We can live with that. That's okay. But don't be trying to tell us that this is a revelation that was received through a revelatory process. And don't, Elder Oaks, try and tell us that if we don't believe that, we are not converted Mormons. That's what he says. Converted Mormons understand that this is a revelation with the obvious implication that if you don't believe that, you're not a converted Mormon. That's crap, Elder Oaks. And I think that that is what I have the biggest problem with about this whole proclamation. Not why it was actually created, but all the lies and stories that are told later on to make it something that it's not. In 1995, a president of the church and 14 other apostles of the Lord issued these important doctrinal statements. As one of only seven of those apostles still living, I feel obliged to share what led to the family proclamation for the information of all who consider it. The inspiration identifying the need for a proclamation on the family came to the leadership of the church over 23 years ago. It was a surprise to some who thought the doctrinal truths about marriage and the family were well understood without reinstatement. Nevertheless, we felt the confirmation and we went to work. Subjects were identified and discussed by members of the Quorum of the Twelve for nearly a year. Language was proposed, reviewed, and revised. Prayerfully, we continually pleaded with the Lord for His inspiration on what we should say and how we should say it. We all learned line upon line, precept upon precept, as the Lord has promised. During this revelatory process, a proposed text was presented to the First Presidency who oversee and promulgate Church teachings and doctrine. After the Presidency made further changes, the proclamation on the family was announced by the President of the Church, Gordon B. Hinckley. In the women's meeting of September 23, 1995, he introduced the proclamation with these words. With so much of sophistry that is passed off as truth, with so much of deception concerning standards and values, with so much of allurement and enticement to take on the slow stain of the world, we have felt to warn and forewarn." End of quote. I testify that the proclamation on the family is a statement of eternal truth, the will of the Lord for His children who seek eternal life. It has been the basis of Church teaching and practice for the last 22 years and will continue so for the future. Consider it as such, live by it, and you will be blessed as you press forward toward eternal life.
Forty years ago, President Ezra Taft Benson taught that every generation has its tests and its chance to stand and prove itself. I believe our attitude toward and use of the Family Proclamation is one of those tests for this generation. I pray for all Latter-day Saints to stand firm in that test. So there you have it, listeners. We've walked you through the history and context of the family, a proclamation to the world. And uh, I would like to just kind of conclude this episode one last time, running through the Elder Oaks audio and allowing you to hear essentially him speaking with the context of what we've just shared with you. Um, Radio Free Mormon, thanks so much. We'll close on that note. Uh, again, appreciate your time in doing this. It, uh, a lot of reading and kind of being aware of information went into this. I hope you enjoy all the audio that's attached. Some of it I know is not quite the quality, but unfortunately that's what we're left with. That's what it was. I tried to clean it up as best I could. But uh, RFM, thank you so much, and uh, appreciate, as always, two of us getting together to talk about something. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you.